You're listening to the Upper Room Frisco podcast. To learn more about your Frisco, please visit upperroomfrisco.com. So um, I felt from the Lord that, um, that we would move today from uh, how to read the Bible to how to gather. Just some of the, the basics of our faith or, or even why, why we gather, why it's so important. While Corey was uh, preaching last week, I was at a pastor's retreat uh, out in North Carolina, and uh, the guy leading the retreat is like a, a spiritual mentor or a spiritual dad of mine, if you will, and uh, he's highly prophetic, and he has, I've had the benefit of knowing him for, for 20 years. His name is Brad, and um, the reason I say I've had the benefit is because he's seen me through seasons of my life just as I've seen him through seasons of his. And this last weekend when I saw him, I saw him cry for the first time in 20 years as if the Lord had been softening his heart more and more and more. And you know how much comfort and encouragement that gives me to see a man of his age become even more tender and soft as the years go by. And he was... He was weeping because he was talking about other men of God that he loved as, as brothers. And, um, you know, that weekend, um, we talked a lot about how important it is to be deeply connected in community. And, um, you know, anytime you go on a retreat or a conference, you usually come away with things that, um, that enrich your life or you're, you're thinking, like, how can I implement the, you know, some of those things? And... And I, I just came away um, deeply impacted and having like a rekindled passion to commune deeply with the saints that God's placed in my life. Anyone else just feel like we're coming into a season where it is the most vitally important time to have community? Community means to we're communing. It's the same root word for communion. We have a common union, and his name is Jesus, who lives inside of us and knits our hearts together. Um, so I just, um, I also came away from that weekend feeling really grateful for what I have here in brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the Lord. I, I have some amazing friendships, and I have uh, people that um, are growing into, you know, deep friendships. I have people who are discipling me and people who I'm discipling, and I'm surrounded by people who are, you know, to put it biblically, they're spurning me on to greater good works in Him. We're, We're encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. We're not giving up on the gathering of the saints of some, as some have had the habit of doing. And um, can you put up that slide that I sent you? I wanted to sum up the entire New Testament in one slide. Y'all ready? You think I can do it? Here we go. When someone says something once, you, you might notice it. When someone says something twice, it starts to get your attention. You think it might be important. When someone says something, two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, about 16 times, you begin to realize that there might not be anything more important than this one thing that they're saying. 
Any parents in here have your kids about to do something horrible and you're like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> you're saying it over and over until they're like, oh, dad had said it 17 times. I'm now going to pay attention. Well, this is dad's message to us. To love one another. All the law and prophets are summed up in this. All the law and prophets are built on this. And even Jesus comes along and it almost appears that at sometimes this, he uses this to trump some of those laws by the way that he would love people. You know, he was supposed to stone that woman to death who was caught in adultery. That's what it said in the law. But he didn't do it because he worked from a greater law, the law of love. He saw an opportunity in that moment to free an entire generation of something that they needed to be freed of. So this might sound cliche, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Life is too hard to go it alone. We absolutely need one another. We need to be intimately connected to people. And it's time to figure out why, if we're having a hard time being intimately connected to people, it's our job right now to figure out why. We need to allow the Holy Spirit in to help us understand places where there might be some kind of lie that we're believing about ourselves, some kind of lie that we're believing about God, or some kind of mistrust that we have of community from past wounds. Whether it's fear, shame, or control, God can deliver us of it. He can heal us of that. You know, every spiritual oppression has one goal. The end goal of every spiritual oppression in anyone's life, any kind of darkness, any kind of sin, any kind of addiction, any kind of you name it, that one goal is to isolate us. To get us alone. So that we, we either think that we're unlovable or we act in ways that make it hard for people to love us. So we either expect to be rejected or we act in ways where we get rejected and it's just time to let the Holy Spirit in and help us get healed of that because guys, I don't want, any, I don't want anyone to walk away with this, from this message with any kind of ungodly fear. So don't hear me wrong when I say that solo sheep are wolf bait. The whole plan of the enemy is to get us out of community, out of places where people can see our blind spots, out of community where people can pick us up when we've gotten knocked down, out of community where people can show up with food when we need it. That's the whole plan. And I'm, um, I'm preaching to myself here. I'm not good at this. I want to be better at, at reaching out to people, at being sensitive to the Holy Spirit prompting me to reach out to people. I want to be better at letting people in. I want to be better at being known, to, to be vulnerable and let people into those places. Someone once told me the difference between transparency and vulnerability is transparency is you let people see in, but vulnerability is you allow them to uh, have access, such access that they can potentially hurt you. That's vulnerability. You're not, just let you're not just letting people see, but you're letting people speak into the things that they see. If we're too busy to do this, we need to ask God if we're living rightly. I'm gonna let that sink in. I'm preaching it to myself also. If we're too busy 
to be intimately connected to saints, to commune, to be one, to be part of a body. If we're too busy, then we need to ask the Lord if we're living rightly. And we might need to make major changes. It might seem foolish or uncomfortable the kinds of changes that you need to make. I recently talked to a very busy business owner who said, I've decided to dedicate every Monday morning to being in the prayer room with my wife and some people that I want to run with. And he said, it's costing me something. It's uncomfortable, but it's, it's such a priority in my life to commune with these people and to commune with the Lord that I have to do this. I have to set aside this time. That's, that's one amazing way someone is sacrificing in order to actually get the, the greatest gift God has for us, which is connection to the body. Recently, a, a family in our, in our body went through a, a season of sickness. You guys know those, those times when it seems like you've got like several kids or whatever or, or a spouse and like it seems like the sickness just gets week after week passed down through the whole family? <laughs> or or, or you, somehow you got over it but then got it again. It's like it cycled back through. Well, that was a season for one of our families recently and we just showed up. We, you know, of course we're praying for them, of course we're laying hands on them, but we're also showing up with food. There's meal trains. We recently had a couple in our church have a baby, and uh, the recovery was a lot worse this time than other children that they've had. And so, guess what? We're showing up with dinners and laying hands and praying, and we're, sh- and we're sending texts to let them know that we're, you know, they're not alone. We're checking in on them. That's what, what Andrew was talking about, how glorious it is to be in a community that actually reaches out and, and tries to help. That's what we want here, amen? Now, I say all this knowing that we are upper room. Our, our ministry is to the heart of God through worship and prayer. We are people who are about the one thing. But I wanna say something that might be a little bit crazy is that you might be fascinated by the beauty of Jesus by looking into the eyes of the person next to you. He's hidden himself in the saints in this room and worldwide, of course. And when we try to draw lines between or prioritize or try to distinguish or delineate between loving God and loving people, it really just always ends up opening us up to a world of confusion. And John would address this confusion often. He would say things like, hey, if you say you love God, but you don't love that guy, you're a liar and you don't love God. Whoa, John, the beloved, the tender guy who laid his head on the chest of Jesus, He'd say, if you love people, love is made perfect in you and there's nothing to make you stumble. Whoa. I mean, that's a promise right there. If you love one another deeply, God's love is in you and there's nothing that can make you stumble. Who wants to claim that? Let's name it and claim it. Just grab it from the air, place it on your head and your heart. Like, we want that reality and we want that promise, Lord. Guys, Jesus loved people even before they had the capacity to have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. So he didn't have that religious answer where like, I I just love the brothers, the brotherhood, I just love the people, you know, the people of God. Like, no, no, no. There were people who, like, 
He, he hadn't yet accomplished this purpose of death, resurrection, and ascension to change us into vessels in which the Holy Spirit could live. And so he's looking at people who are sinners without the capability of having the Holy Spirit yet and saying, and, and Jesus laying down his life for them. While we were still sinners. There's this really cool scene. Uh, it's a... It's a parable, but I do believe that there's just so much actual literal reality to it when Jesus is talking in Matthew 25 about people who are standing before him and, and Jesus talks about what love looks like. And he says to them, these people who are standing before him for judgment, he's, he's basically looking at the timeline of their whole lives. And Jesus is saying to this one group, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And of course we know they're like, when? Lord, like, we don't remember seeing you hungry or thirsty or, or a stranger. We don't, we don't remember you seeing you naked and needing clothes. And y'all know how this ends. Jesus says to him, the, the least you've done to one of these, you've done to me. And of course, there are people who are lined up and Jesus is like, you didn't do these things for the people around you. So Jesus, in this moment, he's, he's essentially saying the good you've done and the good you've withheld from people around you is the good that you've done or the good you've withheld from me. I mean, no greater love has anyone than this, right? That he laid down his life. There's this um, incredible old man of God who's passed into Gloryville his, uh, his name's Bob Jones. Um, he's hanging out with Jesus in unfiltered glory right now. They're high-fiving while I talk about him in this moment. You ever thought about that, the great cloud of witnesses? He's probably listening. I'm gonna tell a Bob Jones story and he's gonna be like, you missed that detail, but you did pretty good. Like, <laughs> oh, I can't impersonate him. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> Bob had just one, the one of a, one of a kind voices, one of a kind personas, personalities. Anytime the anointing would fall on, he put out his hand and it would be going like this. If you've ever had the the blessing and benefit of being around him, you probably felt the presence of God just being around this guy. But he he's died he died twice before he finally he finally it finally like took hold. Um, he was resurrected twice. I'm saying this really poorly. Help me out here, guys. Start praying for me. Um, pastor needs intercession. So he, he dies, and he's standing before the Lord, and there are all these people lined up. And it's, you know, one of those kind of like judgment situations where, you know, people's lives are, are, are being looked at. And, and we all know, like, 
all the different metaphors, all the different things written in scripture about what this might look like. And so this story doesn't trump any of those. This is just his personal experience of going and standing before the Lord when his heart ceased functioning for quite a while. He was, you know, proclaimed dead. Um, He's standing before the Lord, uh, and he's seeing all these people approach, and when they get up to Jesus, Jesus looks them in the eyes and, and asks, did you learn to love? Did you learn to love? And the people who had learned to love, you know, he, he swings his arms open, and the doors of his chest swing open, and he hugs them into his heart, into eternity. And Bob um, is a little bit nervous. He doesn't think that he's ready for this moment. And long story short, um, Bob is resurrected and comes back with this message that this is going to be the main thing that the Lord asks us when we stand before him. We need one another and one another is the greatest gift that God has given us. A lot of people, um, you know, we get this idea that all we need is uh, some secluded place to be alone with God, or you know, you know, give me Jesus, but keep those Christians. You know what I mean? Like, oh, <laughs> there was a guy that had unfiltered glory, God, all the time. His name was Adam. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Adam had what all of us want. You're looking into the face of Alpha, Omega, the breath of life, the beginning and end, in whom, through whom, for whom all things were created. He's looking at the most glorious, beautiful man who's his best friend, his father, his big brother. He's got, you know, he's like wrapped up in the divine embrace of the Trinity. You know, Adam is unfiltered glory, walking around. You guys picking up what I'm spilling? He had what we want. God looked at this situation and said, this isn't good. You're still alone and made for him a helper. He said, for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So he knew that it couldn't just be man and God. It had to be community. It had to be a family on earth that mirrored the family of heaven. Two weeks ago, I, I talked about Jesus appearing as a, a gardener when he came back and Mary's at the tomb and he shows up and he's in disguise. And then the next time we see him on the scene, uh, he's on the road to Emmaus and they don't recognize him. He's dressed up like a stranger again. And it makes me wonder if... Um, Jesus is still showing up in disguise all the time in our lives and people around us that we had no idea it was him. The, uh, the promise of the Father, the most glorious thing, the, the mystery that has been kept hidden secret for ages and generations, the things that prophets long to look into, what is it? Christ in you the hope of glory, Colossians 
Jesus would say wild things like, if you welcome this little child in my name, you welcome me. And if you welcome me, you welcome the one who sent me. He would say, we already covered this one. In Matthew 25, the least you do under one of these, you've done unto me. And then I, I think that when you pair that up with him showing up as a gardener and showing up as a stranger on the road to Emmaus, he's trying to hammer home a point that when you love someone, when you, are, when you selflessly or when you give self-giving, other-centered love to other people, you might just be ministering to him more than you ever thought possible. Hebrews 13.12 says that, or 13.2 says that a lot of people have unknowingly entertained angels when they welcome strangers into their home. So if someone can show up to you as a person and you find out, you know, when you're on the other side of eternity that it was actually an angel that you were hosting, don't you? It's not that far-fetched that the Lord himself would do that, is it? You know, I felt like when I was at that retreat with those guys, it was like 20 or 30 pastors, uh, you know, sharing war stories and crying on one another's shoulders and just having fun and, and being dudes. And um, I, I felt just so deeply loved and, and so deeply known. And, um, and one of the, the main themes of the whole weekend, Brad just kept saying this over and over and over again, is, you know, we can... We can often miss the supernatural by looking for the spectacular. And Jesus is in this room right now and he's hidden in the person next to you. And when we begin to see the Lord in people, see the Lord through people, y'all, look out. It's, it's the secret sauce that we've been overlooking this whole time. Jesus, he's even said, like, you have to become the body. You're being knit together in one. One time the Lord said to me, if you become the body, I'll supply the blood. But the, everyone looks over or overlooks becoming the body. And when we're, we have holes in our body, all the blood, all the power of Christ drains out of our body. Or we look at each other and say, there's something wrong with you and we're slandering and cutting one another. Well, that's the bride of Christ bleeding out the power of the Lord. felt like we might have a, a better appreciation for what the gathering of the saints really is if we took a little bit of a stroll down church history. You guys want to put on your nerd caps with me and go way back to the first century? <laughs> oh, I love this stuff. So uh, when Jesus ascended in about AD 31, he left behind a, a ragtag team of uneducated, mostly foul-mouthed fishermen who, <laughs> who <laughs> they, they weren't rich. Um, but in, uh, in Acts 42, uh, Andrew was reading some from Acts about you know, the gathering of the saints, but this is one of my, my life verses. Acts 2.42, I believe, shows us what uh, first century covenantal community looks like, and it says that they were continually together. That's hurdle number one. How do we get together? How do we hang out in one place? How, not just 
I mean, I know, I know we've learned a lot from like Skype and, and whatnot over the past year, but how do, we, how do we get in one place and gather together? They were continually together, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, so th- now he's really bringing it home. They were continually together, and they were devoted to fellowship, so it means that they didn't just accidentally get together, they made it a priority. And y'all know what fellowship means? It just comes from two fellows in a ship. I know, words, they're crazy. <laughs> but the, the implication or the insinuation is that they're rowing in the same direction. That's actually what creates fellowship. We're in this boat together, and if we don't work together, it's not gonna work out. And so you're unified by the fact that you are in this boat and you have to, the only way for you to get to where you need to go is for you to come into agreement. That's fellowship. Uh, they were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What we do here, this worship and prayer, this communing with God together. I, I, like I said, this is one of my life verses, and it's one of the first things that we learn about the church. We also learn that They're very dedicated to feeding one another, feeding the hungry, feeding the poor, and taking care of the widows, which means that the heart of Jesus took hold of them. Like the the main thing that they started to do was this, and then to take care of people who are hungry and widows, take care of the sick. We know that Stephen gets martyred by this uh, zealous group of Jews led by Saul. Saul would later get converted, and that guy would write half of our New Testament. How cool is that? A jihadist wrote half of the good book. Paul recounted the moment that he uh, was knocked off his donkey and saw Jesus in dazzling light, and he says, he he, he, he labels that moment when it pleased the Father to reveal Christ in me. How amazing is that? And then James gets martyred. So the, church, the reason I'm going back to the first century church is because I want us to actually take stock of whether or not we're doing what God wants us to, to do as a body. So James gets martyred, and this time it's different because he's the first martyr at the hands of a Roman official, which opened up the church to persecution on a national level where it became normal for Romans to persecute the, the believers. At that time, we left Jerusalem because of all the violence and Christianity spread even more. Around 54 AD, this guy named Nero came in as the emperor of Rome and he was particularly horrible to Christians, uh, deranged, you might say. Uh, He was the guy that would light Christians on fire, on stakes, line the streets with them and use their burning bodies as lamps to light the street. at this time, James and Galatians and First and Second Thessalonians and the Gospel of Mark were written, but under Nero's persecution, under Nero's persecution, the majority of the rest of the New Testament was written. Nero, uh, he was so ruthless and cruel that much of Rome actually turned against him and started to sympathize with the Christians, and Nero was labeled a madman, a madman because of how demonically charged he was in being cruel to, to believers. Y'all hanging with me? 
We're just doing a fast walk through a few centuries. Domitian becomes emperor and persecutes Christians on a much larger scale. So he's just as gnarly, but now he does it everywhere. It's not just in Jerusalem. Um, And during uh, Domitian's reign, John was exiled and he wrote all of his books. Uh, Domitian died and John the Beloved died and that was known as the end of the apostolic age. And then during the second century, even more persecution happened. Um, But the second century was really important because under the persecution, the saints began to uh, gather together and talk about why we believe what we believe and what it means. And we began to understand how important it is to be able to defend our faith and understand what it is that um, people are are dying for. There were just so many martyrs in this uh, second century. Um, There are these incredible believers who refused to curse Christ or recant their faith in Christ. And sometimes they even got released after being brutally tortured and they became heroes in the church. They were known as the confessors. And so if you ever read church history and and hear something like Bartholomew the confessor or uh, Justin the confessor or whatever, just know that the reason they got that title is because they were tortured to the verge of death and didn't recant their faith in Christ and were eventually released to become you know, teachers within the church. This is our rich history, guys. The Roman leaders were so perplexed and annoyed by the believers' stalwart de- devotion to Christ, how stubborn we were in our beliefs. There were so many um, women who became famous. Uh, there was one widow who um, had seven sons, and this Roman official brought all of her, seven, her and all of her seven sons in and martyred each son in front of her one by one, hoping that she would turn from Jesus, and she never did. And then she got to pass into glory, wake up in the arms of Jesus, and all of her boys were there, of course. Another one, I, I love this story. You can look this one up. This woman's name is Perpetua. And uh, when she was apprehended, she's a believer apprehended, she was pregnant. And she was afraid that if she was pregnant, the Romans would go easy on her and she wouldn't have the honor of facing the same fate as her friends. And so she began to pray that her baby would come a little bit early. And so at eight months, God, God answered her prayer. At eight months, her baby comes early and she gives it to another Christian family for adoption so that she can be put in an arena with her friends. And they release all sorts of wild beasts into the arena so that they can watch these you know, powerful wild creatures kill the believers. You know who lasted the longest? This sweet little postpartum woman. She'd been attacked by several wild beasts and was still going. She gets knocked down by a wild boar. This is true, this is a true story. She gets knocked down by a wild boar. She gets gored by this thing pretty bad, but she stands back up and her hair is in a mess. And she asks the Roman officials for just a moment so that she can retie her hair in place because loose hair is a sign of mourning. And she wanted everyone to know that this was the most joyous and celebratory day. Those are our heroes of the faith. (sighs) 
Why am I telling you this? Because in in those centuries, the worst thing that could happen to you as a believer is that you are excused from the community. You're excommunicated. The very worst thing that could happen to you is that you don't get to run with these friends. You have to fend for yourself. You're out there as a lone sheep. But now today we have people looking for any small reason they can find to leave a body. I get a little heated. Um, we, have, we have people church shopping all over town to find a place that meets their needs instead of desperately desiring and attempting to be intimately and vitally connected to a body. If you're offended right now, you need to be. If we're not offended every once in a while, we're not in a church. We're in an echo chamber. This isn't a social club. It's what Jesus and the martyrs gave their blood for. So why are we going to church? Let's say, let's say I'm going, I'm, I've decided to start attending the church because I like the worship. Well, let's say a few weeks go by and they don't sing the songs I like. I don't get any goosebumps. There's no oxytocin release. I don't have any of those endorphin dumps into my veins because we're not singing the song that ministers to me. Or let's say I'm going to a church because I like the teaching. A little bit more dicey, right? Well, what if that guy just has a bad month? You know, what if, what if I just preach horribly for like a month straight? It's like, you know, God takes my gift or something. Or I don't preach the messages that you want to hear. Or I say something that offends you. Does that mean that you're, you're only here for the teaching and you're, you're out? Is teaching important? Yes. Yes, it is. Sound biblical Sound doctrine, it's all very important. Is worship important? Yes, it is. We get to come together and celebrate who God is and celebrate what God is doing. It's so vitally important. But I need to be here for the beauty of Jesus in heaven and the beauty of Jesus in you. That's it. I need to be intimately and vitally connected to a body that can call me out on my stuff and has given me the permission to call them out on their stuff. People who can see my blind spots, and I know that they love me, and so I'm going to do what they say. We need this, guys. We need people that we can celebrate heartily with because they know the hard season that we went through and the breakthrough that we got. We, know, we need people who will mourn with us because they know that we've had a, a tremendous tragedy or a loss in our life. Saying I love God but hate the church is like telling your spouse I love your face but hate your body. Anybody willing to walk up to the bride of Christ and say that to her when you know whose husband she has? (laughs) People, it's... 
It's easy to get down on the church, but could you imagine a world without her? Think about it. Imagine the endless, inestimable impact the church has had on humanity, on the world. There's a reason like every major university was started by a strong believer. There's a reason why almost every hospital has saint in front of it. Only got about halfway through the church history that I wanted to get into. Suffice to say, um, I selfishly want you to be fully yourself and fully at home in community. And I say selfishly because when you are fully yourself, I get to see a Jesus in you that I'd never see anywhere else. I get a revelation of Christ in you when you are yourself that I wouldn't get anywhere else. And when we all come together and that is the pervasive atmosphere of freedom and joy and celebrating one another, then we get a full manifestation because since we are the body of Christ made up of many parts, I selfishly want us to come together and be comfortable celebrating and mourning or being a mess or being strong in that moment. I want us to come together however we are, free of shame, fear, and control, so that I can see Jesus manifested on the world. This is like a gumbo pot. This is 1 Corinthians 14, 26. We come together and everyone has something. Someone brings a teaching, someone brings a tongue, someone brings an interpretation, someone brings a song, someone brings a, a testimony, a revelation. We all come together with something and it's coming from who we are, the glory of one another's stories. I once heard an, an incredible pastor say, he had put it like this, thank you for letting me walk on the sacred grounds of your story with God. So I'll say it to you, thank you for letting me walk on the sacred grounds of your story with God. And I wanna let you in on mine. Can we stand and just ask the Lord to do this miracle in our hearts? Jesus, thank you that you confound the wise. And I've been that one who's been confounded. Thank you that you've hidden so much glory in these earthen vessels to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Thank you that you left us a message, a clear, resounding message to love one another deeply, to not give up on one another. And we pray right now for Upper Room Frisco that we would become that body, that we would become the answer to your prayer, Jesus, that we would be unified, that we would know you, that we would love you as the Father loves you. God, we ask that this, this church would be a sign and a wonder. God, the, the world has seen the church try everything else. We've seen, we've seen miracles. We've seen campaigns. We've seen everything. The world's seen everything except for a body that deeply loves one another, a unified church. We ask that Paul's vision for the church would be fulfilled. He gave us the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers 
for the building up of the body that we would become one in the faith, the unity of the faith, and that we would reach the full measure and stature that is of Jesus. So God, we ask that you would unify us and make us as powerful as Jesus himself. In Jesus' name, amen.